What's up, folks? My guest today is Rachel Nemeth, the CEO and co-founder of Opus. Rachel's got 13 years of experience in restaurants all over the place, and she's building Opus to be the mobile-based training powerhouse for frontline workers. And yes, that includes you, lovely hospitality creators listening right now. If you enjoyed this conversation, I also recommend you queue up my conversation with Joshua Sharkey. He is the CEO and founder of Mies, which is the recipe training software. Funny enough, I brought up Josh's name and Rachel knew exactly who he was, and we're hoping to have a bit of a conversation together with all three of us next time I get a chance to go to New York. If at any point you would like to pause, check out Rachel or Opus online or any of the specific linkable things that we discussed, please do check out the show notes, which are always available in the description of this podcast. So let's learn about training, teaching, and more right after I share a little bit about Total Station Domination which is, in effect, a streamlined version of the Demi Skills course. Most of you probably have heard about me talking about the Demi Skills course in previous podcast conversations or in YouTube videos. We've pared it down to focus specifically on chef de parties, line cooks, anyone running a station that wants to be more organized, less stressed, increasingly productive, and adaptable in professional kitchen environments. So it's taught over three weeks. I will be there speaking live, teaching all of the skills with you and all of the other students. And enrolling now, believe it or not, gets you lifetime access to the course. And so as we do future cohorts, this is cohort number two. It's technically the third one, but we had a beta before that. So we're hoping to do several of these a year. And so you can effectively, if you want to brush up on a skill, learn something again, you can just join the live sessions again, absolutely free. And so each of these modules is split up between teaching skills uh, all across dominating tasks, dominating habits, and dominating obstacles. And you also get a student community to engage with other like-minded and progress-focused professionals. So check out the link in the show notes to learn more about Total Station Nomination or visit joinrepertoire.com slash TSD to learn more. And I will hopefully see you in cohort number two. Rachel, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a delight to have you here with us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I have a quote that I wanted to read, and, and a lot of the listeners might empathize with this, and maybe maybe it might ring too close to the chest. It's, quote, imagine what it would feel like if you're walking in, it's your first day as a server at an 11-unit restaurant group, and everyone's doing a great job. But it just so happens that the GM isn't there that day, so you have somebody else who really doesn't know what, that, what they're supposed to be training you for, and you have no assistance in how to do your job, and then it kind of spirals from there, end quote. I think... Too many of us have probably been there. Where does that quote come from and why does it ring so true for you? I think it rings true because it's the reality of frontline work. And it's not actually a nightmare. It's it's really just the status quo. And I think what's happened when it comes to training in any frontline job and restaurants being, you know, one of the, the biggest industries in the United States is that we're not actually creating tools that can leverage those experiences and leverage what's actually happening with like managers being stretched thin and employees who are leads having to train the new guy or the new gal who comes in. So for me, it's really about the reality of what's happening. Did, did you have a figure in your life that kind of prioritized teaching or was kind of a, an impactful training figure for you? Because a lot of times, especially when it's a very kind of ego, ego driven, creative tempers are high 
kind of industry, it can often get put pushed by the wayside and it can be training can be seen as, as soft. But I'm, I'm curious if, if there was a pivotal moment for you to get a, maybe a sense of your background where training really shone through. So to rewind a little bit, my background really is inspired by my parents and my grandparents. So my grandpa owned a barbecue chain in Kansas City. My dad was an English teacher by day and a bartender by night. My mom is still in the food industry. All of my aunts and uncles are very academic. My aunt was the vice provost at Rice University. So I grew up in this world that surrounded itself with careers that were kind of a cross (laughs) between uh, teaching and the front line. And so this has always just been inherent to how I've seen the world of work. Training was never something I thought I would go into. I never thought I would be an operator. I never, frankly, thought I would be in restaurants forever. I thought it was me just paying off college loans. But there's a lot of systemic issues that are happening in restaurants right now. And many can be solved with better tools and better technology for operators and for frontline workers. The decision to start with training was because foundationally, if you can help somebody feel effective in their job within the first six hours and then in the next six days and 60 days and 600 days, then the likelihood that they're going to stay and grow and earn more money is much higher. So it always felt to me like training was the backbone of more of creating more efficient operations and also better work lives for individuals. So that's really why training always kind of inspired me as a really interesting wedge for great technology for frontline teams. When you describe that first six hours, are there specific characteristics or best practices? People might be listening and saying, my first six hours was somebody handed me a case of something and just told me to get started on whatever. What can people keep in mind as potentially you know, yes, give them the work, the work, go into the project, start very hands on. But but when you're talking about what those first pivotal things are, what can people keep in mind or potentially institute like this week if they have somebody starting on Tuesday? Well, let's set the context here, right? Like the reality of what's happening in the workforce today is that we're in the most competitive labor market in, in U.S. history. Businesses and the wages are rising well above what they were in pre-pandemic levels. And that's just a sign that businesses are having to compete for talent, right? What's happening right now in restaurants is it's like, hey, Justin, are you are you breathing? Great. Can you start now? Like, that's what's happening. It's not, hey, we're going to send you to the corporate office to do this three day training. It's I'm going to give you an apron and you need to start immediately. So those first six hours are such a critical moment to ensure that somebody comes back for their next six hours. And so when I think about Opus, for example, we one of the first problems we had to tackle was how can I make sure that somebody, the moment they walk through that door, it's not a revolving door. It's one that welcomes them in so that they can start quickly. So that's why we have a QR code that you scan to get into the system. And you don't need an email. You just need a phone number. And then it's fully automated. So the system knows that Justin is a new hire. So there's a message from the CEO that says, hey, welcome aboard. Hey, you need to get compliant in these few things, but also here's your pathway from prep cook to line cook. So if there's some sense of predictability to where you're going to be in that job, 
even within your first six hours, aren't you more likely to go back the next day? <laughs> the, 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 the rise of thinking systems are cool is like one of the most amazing transitions that I'm seeing as part of the industry because those are the operators who are hopefully, you know, going to have that staying power and be open for years and decades to hopefully come. And so I'm curious, is there, is there something that you have to, you can share with an, an, an operator or a head chef or, or general manager, someone who has potentially been, I'll call it poisoned, tainted by this, you know, bashing systems, structures not for me. I joined restaurants because it is kind of rough and tumble pirate culture. Can you sell the, maybe the importance, and, and I have a follow-up question to this, but can you sell maybe the importance of systems and is, is there anything that you, motivational interview style, works with operators who have potentially pushed back on that structure, but after hearing XYZ, they come around? I don't. So I would push back a little bit on that to say I don't know that managers, you know, frontline managers are necessarily rejecting systems, but I think the systems that have been presented to them don't match the outcomes that they're looking for. And so... <clears throat> when it's sort of being shipped down from corporate, it has to align with what's happening. You know, things are on fire every single day in a restaurant. The output can't be, hey, our employees are going to be, and I, this is very cynical, but it's true. <laughs> it can't be, hey, our employees are going to be happier as a result. It needs to be, listen, you're going to save money as a result. Your, incre your sales will increase. Um, you're going to keep your team in longer and there's going to be fewer mistakes or whatever that value proposition may be, needs to be delivered to those GMs who, by the way, are holding the P&L in their hands, <laughs> are asked to manage it. So if you aren't giving them a system that's going to help them either reduce costs or increase sales, then that system shouldn't have been implemented in the first place, which is why we designed a system that's specifically for operators and not for human resources, to be perfectly honest. We partner with human resources, but you have to drive business outcomes that are, in this day and age, going to help you do a lot more with a lot less. Can you share a little bit about how Opus is more engaging because of its mobile first nature? I grew up in, in restaurants where phones were effectively outlawed like you couldn't have <laughs> your too. your phone on you at any at any point in time it was seen as as a negative but for you to look at it as well it's this fascinating tool through the combination of i think you guys share the stat that 3 out of 4 deskless employees don't have email and so using that you know phone number authorization is a great piece and i can assume a ton of just great automation systems on the back end for you guys how does that actually tangibly, if someone's listening and they're like, okay, cool, it's it's on the phone, but maybe share a little bit about how that actually translates to better training, more engagement with staff. So let's just set the stage here. You know, there's 110 million American workers who don't sit at a desk all day. 14 million are working in restaurants. 70% of them are working in restaurants that are part of larger groups. So we are, we have to be thinking about scale. Right. In, you know, six years ago, when I started my previous company, ESL Works, the amount of door knocking I had to do to get people to even think about training on their phones was just I gained a lot of leg muscle as a result of that. But but the this new 
era that we're in is changing. Businesses realize that they need to be reaching four generations, and the best way to do that is through a personal device. You can't do that over email, and frankly, you can't do it by putting somebody in a closet with a laptop computer that's five years old. Your employees are using some of the most sophisticated technology on the planet, their iPhone or their Android, and asking them to switch from that to use something that, you know, is 20 years old doesn't actually match what their expectations are. So the mobile first aspect is certainly about accessibility, right? People, everybody has a phone now. 98% of frontline workers have a phone. And I'll also say this, operators have increasingly become lenient with those phones because they know that it is an integral part of your work life. You have second jobs and kids and commutes. And so even when I was working in restaurants five years ago, we started to go be more lenient, knowing that, you know, Anna had kids in daycare and she needed to make sure she could check up on them. And asking somebody to call the office phone isn't realistic either. <laughs> like host res is offsite now. So where are you going to call the host stand? Well, they're also catering to customers. So like you see my point where the operation itself doesn't even allow for you to not have a personal device to communicate with the outside world. And then in addition to that, people are using their phones. And I think there's this stigma that, oh, my team's going to go off in a corner and like go on to TikTok all the time. I just, it's just not the reality. I've worked in these kitchens too. The amount of people who are using their iPhone to self-educate is fascinating. People who are using it to go onto YouTube to watch a quick video on how to do a specific technique or to learn about the restaurant critic who's coming in. Think about that. The way that we learn is mobile first already. So you have to meet people where they are. And the beauty of what you can do with technology is capture data. So that's what Opus does is we're helping meet people with a phone, a phone-based solution, but but kind of keeping it encapsulated in an experience where employers can get frontline business intelligence and really understand what's working and what's not with their training and with their, their operations so they can make better business decisions. All the while their employees are happy and don't feel like they're using technology that is inaccessible to them. Do you, what have you seen or, or I've seen both sides of this. There's a, there's a learning style. Everybody has a different way of absorbing information or, or comprehending and really internalizing it and, and then putting it into practice. Some people, there's the, the learning styles, quizzes and frameworks that people can take. There's written tools, photo tools, video tools. Don't just, what, what is it, the, the learn one, do one, teach one kind of framework. Does all of this make, actually resonate? Do you guys, does this dictate how you guys make decisions at Opus? Is it all just a bunch of baloney? Talk us through, through learning and how, how people actually absorb this information. So there's a lot of approaches to learning, right? And I love that you're mentioning this because everyone has a different school of thought. The term microtraining is very trendy right now, but that doesn't actually, that's not actually the only approach you could take. We do microtraining, of course, but you have to think about the approach of that microtraining. So we call it PPP, present, practice, produce. It has to reflect the reality of what's happening on the job. So a lot of what traditional systems kind of got wrong 
is that they said, okay, we're going to digitize all of your training. We're working in kitchens and commissaries and in front of guests. And when you're a host, you need to learn how to answer the phone properly. Well, you can do that by watching a quick video, but I need somebody to give me feedback on how I'm doing that. And it better not be the customer who's complaining because I didn't do it well. It needs to be feedback that someone's catching me on before I make a mistake. So present is where you're, you're kind of lining up an automation for those employees. Okay, your, your skill path is you're going to learn the fry station. Great. Okay, so I'm going to give you a couple of safety videos. You're going to learn how to empty the fryer oil. So you can just comfortably take some small lessons. But then there's the practice, right? So for, in our case, it's a quick assessment. It could be an open-ended question. It could be a survey, what have you. But then there's the production. And this is my favorite part about what we're doing is we're saying, okay, but we all know the reality, right? Which is that Juan needs to shadow Julia to know uh, how to actually empty the fryer oil. That's where that really magical coaching moment comes in. And mind you, it could be a manager. It could also just be your station buddy. It doesn't actually matter who's coaching you. It just has to be someone who's more experienced. So present, practice, produce. That produce pieces where really interesting data starts to get shipped upstream because, okay, great, you can empty the fryer oil now. I gave you four out of five because you need to make sure to drain it more slowly, what have you. Well, all of a sudden, we start to track how the, that skill is being trained on across the entire company, across all 100 locations, and we discover that these 10 locations are doing it really well and these 90 are doing it improperly. And we learn that it's because the regional director told them to do it one way. See what I'm saying? Like, this is about the individual, but it's also about capturing that information so you can create better processes and hold the company as well as the employee accountable to systems that will make everyone successful. It's a long-winded way of describing PPP, but there's a lot of like really intricate, important details in there that aren't getting tracked with a lot of the traditional, you know, even just pen and paper. The getting feedback piece is, is so crucial because I am very much so that it's, it's what drew me to cooking initially was the fact that it is an immediate feedback type of like you either got the skin crispy enough or you didn't. You either, <laughs> you know, reduced it enough or, or, or the sauce broke. You know, like the, there's so much great kind of feedback that comes just by the practice of it. But how you're talking about having someone who's one rung on the ladder above you to give that feedback and just, you know, triple check me. Just make sure that this is correct is super underrated. And so the way that you guys are thinking about that is amazing. There's there's a, the, a word that you mentioned or phrase maybe rather, is skill paths as a way to potentially reframe how career development happens for deskless employees. Because, you know, the path from dishwasher to prep cook to all of a sudden you're on pastry now is kind of like you're, you're stacking these skills to progress through your career versus, you know, something that another industry might not potentially look at as going from finance to all of a sudden media production or something like that in the company. So can you share a little bit about how you've seen that and, and how people can potentially think about stacking skills and skill paths as a progression track? Yeah, I think just like micro training, I think upskilling and skill path is a term that often gets used kind of pretty loosely and almost to a 
a dangerous extent sometimes, right? I'm going to tell you and share a little anecdote and then I'll answer your question. So when I first was starting the company years ago, mind you, I'd already worked in restaurants for 13 years, but I was looking at it through a new lens, which was, okay, how can we actually create meaningful experiences for operators so that they could scale effectively and, and you know, keep their people? So I went into a multi-unit restaurant group, some folks that I knew, and I asked all the GMs to sit down around a table and on one post, on a post-it, they had to write one job. So each post-it represented one job in that company and they took a minute and they had to write down every job in the company. And I said, okay, now take those post-its and arrange them in the order of how people report to each other in the company. Pretty easy, right? So you have like executive chef on top and, you know, COO, XYZ, all the way down to like bussers and dishwashers. And then I said, okay, nice work. Now rearrange it or keep it the same depending on how people and show me how people grow in your company. Mm. Well, map changed. And it's such an important story to tell. And I tell it all the time because a lot of us forget that the way that the reporting structure does not equal the way people grow. What I learned that day, of course, was in that particular company, the pathway to AGM, to assistant general manager, was host. It wasn't dining room manager. They often found that that was the fastest way. So a skill path reflects the reality of how people grow at a job. And so the way we like to think about it, it's it's the way that you build work value in order to achieve whatever economic outcome you're looking for. And it matters because knowing where we are and where we can go is critical to the future of work. And so it's important to like make sure that the skill path is attached to an end value that is important for the individual as well as the company. Rachel, I, I would be I shared before the mics turned on that the audience of this show is a lot of working professionals in restaurants or people in culinary school. And for whether whether I like it or not, they love the most intense day at a restaurant stories from folks here on the show. So if you wouldn't. If you have a story that comes to mind, whether it's, I call it like potentially like a graduation moment, like you had this thing where you're like, I'm actually, this is a really cool day at a restaurant or maybe like, man, I will never, ever do that again kind of story from your, your years in restaurants. Does anything come to mind? From my years in restaurants? Yeah. I'll tell you one that comes to mind. I don't know if this is my best story. I'm sure I have a lot and I don't remember them or chose to not remember them, but... We all have a lot. So, or I can actually tell two. One's a, a long one and one's a short one. So the short one is, I remember the, the moment where I became a leader, where I transitioned from being a manager into a leader. And I had managed, mind you, I had managed for years. I had hired hundreds of cooks. I was usually in operations. That was typically the role that I played. I was usually in NROs, and so it was a pretty common place for me to be. But and it was when I was working for Danny Meyer, and we were opening up Untitled at the Whitney Museum. And I reported directly to the executive chef, Mike Anthony, um, who's still, you know, a friend and mentor. And I was like a measly operations manager, whatever my title was. But I was really kind of running the show when it came to hiring and systems and all this. And we're in the elevator and we're going upstairs to meet all of the new recruits. I think it was 250 people that we had hired in a matter of weeks. Wow. Pretty typical NRO though, right? 
and he turned to me and I'm expecting, you know, Mike is an incredibly, he's just an incredible orator. He know he's charismatic and I had expected him to be doing this speech and he turns to me and he said, I want you to deliver this speech to everyone today. Oh no. I know. And I thought, wow, someone who I deeply respect trusts me to kind of lead the charge in front of all these people and deliver an inspiring moment to them. I was terrified and I still remember what I said to them, but it, it, it was actually less about that. And it was more about somebody entrusting in me the ability to, to, to lead. And that was just an incredibly important moment for me. I think it's really reflective of how I see technology. It's about agency and dignity and trust. And I think there's so much we've gotten wrong in the way of, you know, we're talking about systems and in the way of systems that aren't reflective of the people that we're working with and what they want and the ideas that they have and what they can actually produce at work. So for, you know, at Opus, our whole engineering team, our whole product team, we're always thinking about ways that we can deliver elegant adult solutions for people so that they can really so we can create space for them to lead you know what i mean did that speech go well it went great <laughs> i was terrified but i rem i remember i was <laughs> i was going into it thinking i was going to talk about fear i remember thinking this and mike asked me he's like what do you want to talk about i said i think i'm going to talk about fear and he goes okay and he just like trusted me and then right before i got up there i was like maybe i shouldn't talk about fear maybe it should be something more inspiring than that so Oh I talked goodness. about showing up and what it meant Got to it. show up. And you mentioned there was a longer story. Yeah, this one I can keep short too, though. So sure. I worked at a baking training company called Hot Bread Kitchen. They're based here in New York. They're actually quite big. And I ran a 20,000 square foot facility up in East Harlem. I, I have a lot of experience in restaurants, but also in bakeries. I don't bake, but I can spot a good loaf anywhere. So that's sort of the world I live in. And I have a deep respect for for bakers. But I was always QC and I was always like helping get deliveries out and building out new spaces and fixing machines. We had a global audit, a global audit so that we could sell to this really big customer. I was in charge of, for those of you who aren't aware, global audits are like, your local food safety, you know, food handlers, you know, drop in times like a hundred. They're the most stressful things. It's worse than setting up a HACCP plan. It's like top tier stress levels. I wasn't sleeping. I had like binders of processes. You have to get everyone to track every move they make. Every moment they wash your hands, it's insane. It's the night before the audit. And this was a really important moment for me. I was exhausted and one of our head porters cut his hand really, really bad. I can't even remember how he did it, but it was just one of those things where that like wrong place, wrong time. And he like cut his hand on a piece of metal. And it was one of those moments where you're sort of like everyone's looking and they're like, I don't know what to do. I'm a doctor. And so we like strapped a hand around his wrist and, and he was totally fine. But it's just this scary moment for everyone when the only thing you've been focused on for months and months and months is just passing this audit. And then you realize, like, you can never overlook the, like, importance of the humanity around you and the safety of your people. And it was like a totally honest, weird thing that happened. But I say that 
because there's so many moments in the world of work, especially in restaurants, that can't be planned. You have to be responsive. And I always laugh when people will talk about like, okay, we're going to make the perfect training program. Everything's going to be planned out. We're going to know every skill pathway. We're going to plan out all the LTOs for the year and all the NROs. And our customer success team is trained to basically say, totally get it, know what you want. But what happens when a safety, something like safety gets violated or, you know, you have an inspector walk in or supply chain issues occur? You have to think about training not only as a plan, but also as a responsive mechanism in your workplace. So, of course, as a result of what happened the night before the audit, we put in like new safety training and we did like a quick first aid certification for everyone so they could feel empowered to help if someone, you know, needs a quick bandage and needs some help. So that was a big important moment for me as not only a trainer, but also as a, a manager to kind of rethink how I thought about planning. I teach it as adaptive kitchen productivity for my course because that just adaptability piece is, it's so crucial because at what point have you ever had, let's call it like a two-week span where everything went according to plan? I don't think anybody can take a look at their job and can say that. And it's one of those things where, you know, there's a million aphorisms, right? Like the only constant is change or, or you know, insert any of those pieces, but Maybe to to emphasize a little bit of what you're all about and what, what Opus does is just because that's the case and things come up and problems arise and, and issues issues happen doesn't mean that that's the excuse to not train. Like like even the fact that your brain went to, oh, cool, we can create a system for this is potentially something that's just like so revolutionary for someone to hear. And I just love that that's where you took it and that, that was your your takeaway from that. Yeah. Restaurants will, or just living in these very hectic moments will always, and that's why I love that question. It always helps you, It you always end up learning. I'd love for you to either myth bust or potentially pile on the statement of those who cannot do teach, because that held me back for a really long time. I was like, oh, well, I can't be the teacher because that means that I'm not doing the doing. And it's such a it, 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 it was a limiting belief for me is what I'll call it. And, and it really like when I leaned into the fact that I don't think I've ever told this on the sh- on, on the show before. But when I grew up, I there was a kid who was four doors down from from the house that I grew up in. And all I wanted to do was be able to play tennis. But my high school didn't have a tennis team. We were too small. It's like a little tiny school in town that I grew up in. And so I taught this neighbor of mine how to play tennis so that I could have someone to hit balls with because otherwise I was just hitting up against the wall. And that really, like, as I think back on, oh, well, like, you've always gravitated towards teaching. And and to hear someone say that once in a formative year in my teens, probably, those who cannot do teach, so don't be a teacher because teaching means you can't do the thing, was really harsh for me to hear. And, and I, I held on to that for a little bit too long. So do you agree with that? Do, do, do you, do you, I, I take it that you don't, but, but I'm curious when you hear that statement, what comes to mind? myth. (laughs) I think it it says that people become teachers because they can't get better careers. And I don't think that helps us hold a lot of, I mean, it's no wonder why teachers are treated the way that they are, because a lot of these sayings are kind of ingrained and 
I like to hold the belief that we can all, we are all teachers and we can all be better teachers. And I learn from my team every day, just witnessing how they conduct themselves and how they manage their team. And so I think if anything, to bring it forward even more, we all have a duty to be great teachers and better teachers. If some of it's selfish, it's about like leaving a legacy of like the knowledge. But some of it is also really about helping. What's the best way to put this? The, I'm going to try to like talk through this a little bit. There's something on my mind. I'm reading this book. I like to read a lot of biographies. I never read startup books on purpose. Don't ask me for recommendations because I don't read them. But I like to read biographies. And there's a story of the the book that I'm reading right now where he, growing up, he was having trouble reading. I mean, he years and years no one could figure out why he couldn't read and so as a as a reader i'm like looking at this and like oh maybe he has like some form of dyslexia or some something else is going on and he tells the story of how he enters the third grade and he still can't read and a teacher who ends up being a very important role model in his life walks up to me she goes you're not dumb you just don't know how to read And his whole world changed and she sat down and she, for the first time, that was the first person who had really taken the time to teach him how to read. This whole time, people just assumed that he was dumb or that something was wrong. But in in reality, no one had ever actually taught him. And he's a six-year-old kid who's growing up to be nine nine years old. How the heck would he know that that's what should have happened? My point being is that There's so many moments in our life where we can be introduced to great teachers and we can become great teachers, even if it's for a split second where you're like thoughtfully telling somebody how to get from point A to point B on the street or an extended moment where you build a relationship with a colleague or a coworker who you really match with. And so total, total myth. Even the fact that I'm sh- shocked that you don't like startup books and not because not because it's 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 bad to like them or, or even good to like them. But like I, I, I spoke with a Josh Sharkey, who's the CEO yeah, of, of course Muse, I love Josh. Yeah. And and I asked him because I, I certainly acknowledged that there was like a huge gap when I came out of just being a high performer at a restaurant, multiple restaurants, and then going on to start my own thing. I was doing pop up dinners and I was negotiating with the venues and writing the menus and sourcing all the stuff and hosting the ticket website page and trying to create content to market the thing. And there was such a, a, a gap for me. And so I, I, I was like clamoring for those books. I was like, show me the way, show me the way. There's, there's so much missing here. I'm curious, how did you, did, did you acknowledge a gap? Did, how did you bridge that gap? Were there other resources that were helpful for you? Because, you know, maybe even speaking to someone who's like, oh, well, I always push back at the people who say, well, oh, I'm just a cook. I'm just a cook. People who won't take on the chef title or, or, or what have, like, there's so many limiting things that happen to us. I know that I'm multifaceting this question, but what was helpful for you as you made the transition out of restaurants? So I definitely did read the books early on. And I'm not saying that they're not helpful. It's just more you get to a point where you hit diminishing returns on some of the books. They all sort of share the same thing. So they can definitely be helpful early on. I think I tried a lot of things. 
And I knew that I had a big learning curve, but one of them was I assembled an advisory board of six people who I trusted. Some were in the industry, some were in finance. I just needed other voices. Never entrepreneur alone. That is like the first rule. You're going to get stuck in your own head. You're not going to feel motivated. And so I knew I needed to surround myself with people. And I think we convened once a month. Then I got to the point where the business built so much value, having all these amazing people where I had to decide, okay, do I keep these people in and give them equity or do we part ways and I just, you know, stay in touch? So you do have to make sure if you surround yourself with those people that you're compensating them properly. And that was always the way that I felt more comfortable gaining knowledge as an entrepreneur. I also continue to learn from colleagues like Josh Abinov from Bicky is upstairs. He's the office right above us. You know, Pete from Honor Roll, just really amazing people who I look up to and learn from every day. Don't forget that, like, it's important to lean on the people who are at the same stage as you. And you can find them by just cold emailing them or sending them a note on LinkedIn and saying, hey, I think we're kind of going through the same thing. Do you want to grab a beer sometime? So don't be afraid to ask because most of the time people want to be, you know, surrounding themselves with the, with like-minded people. It can also almost potentially be harmful if you're reading a book about a startup that was built in 2007 or 2011 or 2017 where the economic climate might have been different or the tools that were just frankly available were different. So they had to kind of, what is the, I I think I'm probably like a third of the way through the hard thing about hard things, which is just cataloging this, you know, like early dot-com kind of, you know, era startup saga. And there, there are a lot of things there where you're like, oh, well, that's not really the environment that that's, that's not the reality right now. And so what's important there, if you're reading those books might potentially be to just like, identify the principles here because a lot it's like history doesn't repeat but it rhymes is is kind of the aphorism and so yeah thank you for for sharing that and Rachel is there before we get into rapid fire stuff is there anything else that you know you would potentially want to talk through or or jam on or or that we didn't get a chance to to discuss I want to make sure I get you out of here on time no I think it's been a great discussion and and nice to kind of lean in on some of that the higher order training principles for sure it's a Saturday morning, maybe it's, you know, kind of your first day off after a long week and you kind of stumble into your kitchen and you're trying to make eggs for yourself. How do you make those eggs? Scrambled with spinach, cheese, and I eat them with uh, tortilla chips. Really? <laughs> it's a very weird habit, but I like the crunch. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. What's one thing that you've changed your mind on in recent memory? Great question that I can't learn something new while running a business. And I mean something like tactical. So I, you know, you work a lot when you're an entrepreneur and you learn all the time every day, but I wanted to learn something, you know, I run a lot. So I was kind of doing all the things that I do and, but was still kind of feeling like I was in a rut. And so um, wanted to just do something with my hands And I, so I, and I already know how to cook, like all the things that I wanted to do. So I ended up teaching myself how to embroider. I, I don't know any purpose for wanting to embroider. You're looking at me right now. I'm wearing a black t-shirt. I'm like a very plain clothes, plain 
couch cushions kind of lady, but I really wanted to like do some arts and crafts. And I, it was a nice reminder that no matter where you're at in your career or at what age, setting aside 20 minutes a day to, to hone, to hone a new skill is, is important and healthy. Have you ever done the, uh, printmaking, like stamp, like making a stamp? No, I want to do that too. There's, I'm like so into to all of this stuff now. I really want to learn. I've already tried knitting. That wasn't for me at all, but I really want to try screen printing too. Cool. Like, and stuff so yeah yeah stay tuned i mean you could just i mean you could just bring all of the merch for opus in-house it's like well <laughs> right because we Rachel have a lot decided. of <laughs> is there something that you know you mentioned that you 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 run and you know fitness and exercises is, is part is part of it for you and, and embroidering but is there something else that you know if i had to you know very similar to that story that you shared you had to give a ted talk in like two hours on a topic that people maybe don't think Rachel is actually well-versed on this thing. Maybe it doesn't end up on your, you know, your LinkedIn all that often, but you are actually a pretty, pretty well-versed on this thing. Is there a topic or, or industry or niche hobby that kind of shows up for you? I'm very good at language. I, you can yes. probably figure it out from my LinkedIn profile, but I, I studied language in college. I spent many years abroad. I ran a company that delivered English training in kitchens. So I'm I'm I've always been really attracted to the history of language, to the formation of language, to why we say certain things at different points in history and why uh, we stop saying them, how words morph. So that would probably be the podcast that I'd want to deliver. Speaking the, of. The talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of right after this interview. Let's say you get a call right after we turn the mics off and you've just won an all expenses paid trip to eat at your dream restaurant. And when you get there, there's someone you've always wanted to speak with waiting to have dinner with you. What is that restaurant and who is that person? I'm going to start with the person. It would be Amelia Earhart. Cool. And the restaurant. So this is very revealing about me. I, of course, love eating and love eating out and love restaurants, but I get very I get stage fright in in like nice restaurants so i like aged 11 medicine park years ago and it was like the most terrifying experience of my life the food was delicious i'm sure but i totally blacked out because i was terrified wow. i think it's just like i the whole like staging of food and things is very intimidating for me maybe it's just like ptsd from working in fine dining restaurants forever so it would be amelia Earhart's choice <laughs> wherever she wanted to eat I would go. <laughs> what I didn't catch from your answer is you said Amelia Earhart, but what would you what would you ask her? So for anyone who's listening, there's this like beautiful story that was written in the New York Times a couple of months ago about her helmet that she lost at like one of the biggest races that she did. And it's it was like rumored that she handed it to someone. There's another rumor that she dropped it on the ground. So I want to know what happened with her helmet fascinating yeah it's a great article last question for you rachel and then, and then i'll let you go what do you think chefs can be doing better to help the next generation i don't know that and so i think there's like the canned answer of you know pay people more and train them better and treat them better and i certainly believe and subscribe to all of those ideas you know, reducing harassment in the workplace, creating opportunities for people to get into management roles quickly rather than hiring from outside X, Y, Z. But I might pivot that a little bit and say, I don't, I think there are like 
bigger issues that aren't actually supporting chefs right now that need to be addressed as well. You know, the restaurant's relief is still real and restaurants still need financial support. There needs to be changes in how we think about the kind of technology that's serving restaurants. So I think chefs can only be as good as the technology and politics and systems that and and you know laws that are supporting them as well and i know that's sort of like a big broad answer but i only say it because i think there's like the the kind of obvious things but there also there's also the bigger questions that i think we all need to start answering especially given where things kind of macroeconomically are going it's going to be really important in the next five to ten years especially with the market that we're entering that we're also we're rethinking how we work with or how we kind of support restaurants, I guess. Your time is super valuable, and I can't thank you enough for taking the time to to, to do this conversation with me. I'd, I'd love for you to give a quick pitch for Opus, where you want people to go if they're, they've been nodding their head through this entire conversation, and potentially how to connect with you as well. Yeah, so thanks for listening today. I hope you learned a little something. So to learn more about Opus, go to opus.so. Opus, if you if you aren't familiar with us, is we're a technology company that helps business train their people over mobile. Uh, we have a pretty unique approach to legacy learning systems that actually helps you train your people on the job in the moment to help you create efficiencies at work and and save money over time so that your your frontline workforce can actually grow. I am very active on LinkedIn. I am not active on any other channels. So if you DM me anywhere, please do it on LinkedIn. I will very likely respond. And yeah, w- would love to hear from from everyone here today. We've, we really love to hear what's happening in the industry and, and how we can be of help. Thanks again, Rachel. And I can't wait to see more of what you guys are building because it's so, so well needed. And kudos to you and your team for what you're doing. Thank you so much. It was really great to be here today. I appreciate it. Rachel is so good at just distilling principles and bringing her experience into building something that is truly valuable and contextual and thoughtful for frontline workers and specifically you folks who have probably had horrible training experiences in the past and being able to not just modernize it, but turn it into something that can work across all different types of businesses. And I'm fascinated. I'm keeping an eye on what she's building at Opus. Quick reminder that the cohort number two of Total Station Domination is enrolling through May 30th, 2022. And after that, we will be doing another cohort starting in late summer. I'm hoping around August time. And so if you de- if you missed enrollment for this cohort, you can learn more at joinrepertoire.com slash TSD. There's an email list there. We offer early promotional pricing and just free content from the course to anybody on that email list who's, you know, I understand this is an investment in your career and you want to learn more about it, make sure that it's right for you. And so if you're curious about it, if you want to make sure that you're getting all of those pieces of information first, being on that email list is a fantastic place to start. Until the next episode, I'd love you to roll the outro. Well, well, here we are together again at the end of another episode of the Repertoire Podcast. If this is your first time listening, this is a show for hospitality creators who want to think better, increase their performance, and believe that it's possible to take lessons from what others have already learned. I am your host, Justin Kana, and if you're new here, I'd like to personally welcome you to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Friendly heads up to check out the show notes inside of the description of this podcast if you want to check out previous guests, links to specifics that got brought up in this episode, 
episode, as well as other helpful content that we create and share here online because everything we do is focused on helping you along your journey. If you don't have a ton of time, the best place to start is with some value sent straight to your inbox every single week. It's called the Repertoire Newsletter, where we share knowledge on sharpening your skills, asymmetric upside, and exploring the industry beyond the status quo. If you subscribe, we'll keep you up to date on trends that are shaping the hospitality creator ecosystem. We'll share discounts on gear that we find, as well as content that we've been producing ourselves and helpful articles that we've already read and decided are worth your time. Last up, if you want to connect with other industry professionals in the Repertoire Pro community, you want to check out courses like Total Station Domination or download free tools that we've created, you can learn more at joinrepertoire.com. That's J-O-I-N-R-E-P-E-R-T-O-I-R-E.com. The only ask from me is that if you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate a review of this show on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify to help the podcast universe know that people like us like shows like this. Regardless, I'll see you in the next episode. My name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one.